Hi folks, this is multimedia journalist Michael Fox reporting from Brazil for the Real News Network in partnership with NACLA. So at this point, as you probably know, the long-awaited first-round vote of Brazil's elections has come and gone, and there is plenty to say. This is the first of a number of updates to my podcast, Brazil on Fire. If you haven't heard that yet, I recommend you go back and listen. It sets the scene for everything happening in Brazil now. For today, I first want to take you to that vote, which took place on Sunday, October 2nd. I'm going to kick this off with a radio story I produced from Sao Paulo for PRI's The World. It was aired the day after the first round election. Then I'll bring you an exclusive interview with Brian Meir, one of the editors of the website Brazil Wire, with some pretty insightful analysis. That's up now on Brazil on Fire. In Brazil, there was a surprise result in yesterday's presidential election. Former Brazilian President Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva was expected to be the big winner, even if he didn't win outright to avoid another round of voting. But yesterday's result shows incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro just a handful of points behind Lula. And that means a few more weeks of intense campaigning. From Sao Paulo, Michael Fox has the story. The mood outside the hotel where Lula was watching the results roll in was on fire as the former president passed Bolsonaro in the vote count and took the lead. But it went from ecstatic to subdued within an hour as it became increasingly clear that this election was going to be much tighter than expected. Wilson Gomez is a Lula supporter who was outside as the news came in. We've been following the polls, he told me, and we weren't expecting that Bolsonaro would receive such expressive support as Lula. 48% for Lula, 43% for Bolsonaro. For Lula supporters, victory felt like defeat. In a speech after the ballots were counted, Lula responded to people's fears. Folks, we are going to win these elections, he said. This is just a little extension. Lula told the crowd that he would hit the ground running today. Bolsonaro also spoke to supporters in Brasilia last night, and he said he'd be doubling down on several key states in southeastern Brazil where he hadn't met expectations. There are many theories about why pollsters got the election so wrong amid Bolsonaro's apparent surge. But one thing is clear. Lula clocked in right about where he'd been trending for weeks. Bolsonaro's added support seemed to come from voters who decided to defect from the more centrist third-party candidates. Regardless, if the political climate was intense before, now experts say it's going on overdrive. Mauricio Santoro is a political scientist at Rio de Janeiro State University. And these results will give Bolsonaro more enthusiasm to reinforce his discourse that his supporters cannot trust the polls, and it will also increase the risk of political violence in the campaign. The country is polarized. I saw this speaking with voters yesterday in Sao Paulo. People like Berenice Vieira. I met her shortly after she arrived to the voting center with her husband and teenage son. They wore matching Brazilian soccer jerseys, the colors of the Brazilian flag, yellow and green, Bolsonaro's colors. This election is really important, she said. We're defending our country because there is one candidate that defends Brazil, that defends our homeland and family, and the other candidate that doesn't. The majority of what we saw in mobilization, 
Almost every Bolsonaro supporter I spoke with, like this taxi driver, said they were afraid that if elected, Lula would sink the country into a quagmire of corruption and so-called socialism, rolling back their freedoms. On the flip side, Lula supporters said they were fighting for nothing less than the country's democracy, trying to stop the rising authoritarianism, the violence, the racism, the continuous attacks on state institutions, social rights, indigenous communities, the Amazon. And while the battle for the presidency has captured headlines, the fight for Congress has been just as acute, and it will have a profound impact on these very issues going forward. See, there were more than 1,500 state and federal congressional seats up for grabs, over two dozen senators and governors. An unprecedented number of indigenous, black, and campesino candidates ran for office, and some of them won. Sonia Guarajajara, the leader of the country's largest indigenous organization, she was elected to Congress, as was the first black trans woman, Erika Hilton. Six of the landless workers' movement candidates won state and federal congressional seats. João Paulo Rodrigues is a leader of the landless workers' movement. He said, he said, this was a hard election, but we were politically victorious even if we didn't have all the electoral wins that we needed. But Bolsonaro and his allies, they won big. The president's Liberal Party now has the largest bloc in Congress, with nearly 100 congressional representatives. Several former members of Bolsonaro's government are also on their way to Brasilia. Here's Mauricio Santoro. Bolsonaro's former ministers of agriculture, science, human rights, justice, environment, health, and his vice president were all elected to Congress. So it will be a very conservative legislative power, especially the Senate, the upper house. And if Lula is elected president, it will be a challenge for him. And that is also what the next few weeks will be, a challenge. Lula and Bolsonaro will be pulling out all the stops. If there is one silver lining for Lula supporters, it is this. UCLA historian Brian Pitts. Had Lula won by a large margin um, in the first round, um, had he won outright and avoided the need for a second round, then it would have been absolutely guaranteed that Bolsonaro would have contested the results. Completely without evidence, but he would have contested it all the same and had the potential to gain support from some of the military or the military police. With a close election, Pitts says, it's harder for Bolsonaro to contest the results. The second round election is on October 30th. For The World, I'm Michael Fox in Sao Paulo. That story aired on October 3rd, the day after the election. To get a sense of where things stand now, I reached out to Brian Meir. I am a geographer and a sociologist. I'm the Brazil correspondent for Telesur English program from the South, and I'm a co-editor of Brazil Wire. I wanted to speak to Brian in particular because on the heels of the first round vote, he wrote a piece titled Media Spins Lula's Victory as Defeat. And I think he has a pretty good analysis of where things are at the moment. Here's the interview. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. So first off, I guess my big question is simply, where do you see things right now after the first round? Since Brazil returned to democracy in 1985, a challenger has never beaten an incumbent in the first round of a Brazilian presidential election. Sunday's victory by Lula with over 6.2 million votes marks the first time that this has ever happened. Now, during the lead up 
to the election. In the last couple of weeks, it seems like media, including Anglo media, was kind of setting up Lula to fail, setting up the Workers' Party to fail by predicting a first-round victory, which would have been really even more historic first for Lula, based on a kind of a misinterpretation of polling data. Some polls show them at 50%, some show them at 51%. He needed 50% plus one vote to win in the first round. But the margin of error in these polls was two or three points. Datafolia said Lula would get 50% of the vote and and people use that to predict that he would win in the first round. What that poll really said was there was a 95% chance that Lula would get within 48 and 52% of the vote. So he hit their poll numbers. What happened that surprised a lot of people is that Bolsonaro outperformed his poll numbers. And a preliminary analysis seems to show that this corresponded pretty much with the drop in support for Ciro Gomez who was a kind of third path candidate who was polling between six and nine percent and ended up with three percent. Okay, so in that sense, it was a little bit surprising. Lula now needs 1.8 million votes, more than what he earned, to make it to win the election outright in the second round. Bolsonaro needs to pick up eight million votes. The ball is in Lula's court right now. He has the upper hand. This doesn't mean that you know something bizarre could happen and Bolsonaro could end up winning, but the odds are that Lula will win. Another thing that's being misrepresented, I think, in the, in the general Brazilian media, corporate media, and in the international mainstream media, is that the Workers' Party actually did very well in the congressional elections. Okay? And it even picked up two more seats in the Senate. It's never had a big presence in the Senate. You know, it had... In, in 2019, when Bolsonaro took office, there were six Workers' Party senators, PT senators. They picked up one during the last four years due to uh, someone leaving office. But they picked up another two on Sunday, meaning they now have 50% more senators than they did when Bolsonaro was first elected president. But the big gains were in Congress. At the same time that the Evangelical Christian Caucus lost 37% of its membership over... Uh, something like 32 members, 31, 32 members of the Evangelical Caucus failed to get re-election. Um, the, the Workers' Party gained 12 seats in Congress, propelling them ahead of the Evangelicals, putting them in second place in terms of party representation in Congress with 68 members of Congress, back to exactly where they were in 2014, before the coup, before six years of like daily attacks in the media, total demoralization of the party, they're back to where they were when Dilma Rousseff was president. So that's good news. And among the um, newly elected congressmen and women from the Workers' Party, there's a lot of really interesting young candidates that represent a lot of promise for the future of the party. And I single out here, for example, Carol D'Artora. She was a teacher's union leader in Paraná State, which had some of the most brutal, enormous teacher strikes in 2016, where the right-wing governor, Beto Hisha, ordered police to open fire on teachers with rubber bullets in, during those strikes. And Dr. was one of the union leaders in that. 
She got elected to city council in Curitiba as the first Afro-Brazilian woman in the city's over 300-year history, a city that has a 20% black population. And only two years after that, after pushing through affirmative action in a hostile city council that's 70% right wing and almost all white, only two years into her mandate as a city councilor, she becomes the first black woman congresswoman ever elected from the state of Paraná. You know, so that she's someone to look out for. She's still in her 30s. Could you speak a little bit more about the fact that the Workers' Party, or PT, now has the same amount of seats in Congress as it did before the Lava Jato or car wash scandal? I mean, those corruption investigations, which we explored in episode two of Brazil on Fire, completely tainted the image of the Workers' Party, with the press and prosecutors spinning it as though it was the most corrupt party in the history of the country, which of course is not true. But it seems like the PT has really kind of come back and found its place again. So yes, the PT is back to where it was during the Dilma Rousseff administration in Congress. That's big news. And the idea that that you could paint this as some kind of loss for the PT is absurd. But yet we see that in The Guardian. We see that in, you know, a lot of the media right now. They're back up to 68, but their close coalition, inner circle coalition, which includes the Communist Party of Brazil and the Green Party, they picked up another 12. So together, this block has 80 votes. The PSOL, the Socialism and Liberty Party, which votes together with the PT over 90% of the time in Congress, picked up 12 uh, new members of Congress as well. And there's other center-left parties. So it's important to point out that the PT never had a majority in Congress. I see this false narrative being spread that, oh, they failed to get the majority in Congress, so this is really bad news and whatever. It's like, no, they, Lula got most of his best things done by executive order. They, the most they ever had in terms of uh, control of Congress was like, including its inner circle allies, was like 26%. They always had to work with a hostile Congress. And Lula did a much better job at that as pe- than people like Joe Biden, who, you know, he has a a majority in the Senate, and he still can't pass anything, let alone make executive orders. You know, it's just ridiculous. Like, the Workers' Party pushed through affirmative action, a much more ambitious affirmative action plan, much more rooted in class conflict and, you know, and the working class than the U.S. ever did. He did that by executive order, right? I mean, it was only codified into law during the Dilma Rousseff administration. Brian, in your opinion, what happened with the vote for evangelical candidates for Congress? I mean, that was something we've seen continuously rising in recent decades. And it's also something we really explored in episode three of Brazil on Fire. Uh, But congressional evangelical candidates kind of took a hit in this election. The evangelical caucus next year is still pretty big, but it'll be the smallest it's been in 20 years. Do you have any idea why that may have happened? Yeah. um, When you talk about evangelical vote, it's a, a bunch of different churches. Um, but most of the big evangelical churches in Brazil are prosperity gospel churches that try to um, teach poor people that their um, success in life, their financial success is not based on public policies. It's based on their personal relationship with God. And I think with the, the, the amount of hunger in the country tripling since the 2016 coup or quadrupling, um, 33 million people now facing food insecurity, you know, um, poverty going through the roof, extreme poverty going through the roof. Poor people are beginning to realize that 
politics actually does matter. You know, it does. You can't, you know, your personal relationship with God is not going to, is not going to put food on the table if your government is run by extreme neoliberals. You know, if the economy is under the command of a former Chicago boy who studied under Milton Friedman, who's just pushing through deep austerity cuts and privatizations the entire time, uh, it doesn't matter what your relationship with God is going to be like in that situation. You know, and it goes back to the United States. Remember, Jimmy Carter was an evangelical. This whole, like, you have to be super right wing if you're evangelical only started in the U.S. with Reagan, I think, really. Um, and I think in Brazil, you know, more and more evangelical Christians are realizing that politics does matter and good public policies that benefit the poor do matter. And in that case, that especially the poorer evangelicals are voting for PT this year. Brian, what do you expect in the coming weeks ahead of the second round vote here? I expect a lot of international elites to start trying to normalize Bolsonaro. Uh, as COA, the corporate front group with its publication, America's Quarterly, and its vice president, Brian Winter, is already pitching for Bolsonaro. Um, the BBC ran that big and PBS ran that big documentary. Um, trying to normalize Bolsonaro. Oh, he's just a normal guy who grew up poor and has anger management issues. That's how they tried to <laughs> spin it. It was absolutely absurd. <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that you're going to see more spin. Fox News is, is pitching for Bolsonaro. Probably Wall Street Journal is going to support him like they did four years ago. Uh, and the Bolsonaros are going to continue to try and discredit the election system. But with uh, the MDB party, the very powerful behind-the-scenes actor, MDB, whose candidate, Simone Tebet, got third place in, in Sunday's elections, now fully behind Lula, campaigning for Lula, um, trying to get uh, a polling agency, Poder Data says 98% of the people who voted for Tibet are going to vote for Lula. That's a, that should be enough to put them over the top. I think that um, when the second round comes, Lula's going to win. I think the fight for the Bolsonaros right now is to keep that winning margin as slim as possible so that they can, in Trumpian fashion, argue that the election was stolen and try to, you know, encourage some kind of silly uh, capital riot type situation. But it's pretty clear that the military is not going to be on board with that at this point. I mean, right. At least the army isn't. I mean, there have been right. signs that the Navy and Air Force might be on board with Bolsonaro, but they're very small compared to the army. I think it's fascinating what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I mean, Ciro Gomez didn't want to come out and say anything in support of Lula, but at least his party did. And then Tibet, like you said, she's also kind of come on board. So what does this all mean that these third-party candidates that got the most votes, even if only 3 or 4%, are all supporting Lula at this point? Well, that should be enough to put him over the top. I mean, he only needs he only needed 1.8 million votes to win it in the first round, and Simone Tebet had 4.9 million votes. Okay, like nobody who voted for Lula is going to switch votes at this point. Very few people who voted for Bolsonaro are going to switch. So the battle is for these people who voted for the third candidates. It looks like half, according to poll, some two different polling agencies I saw, like half of Ciro Gomez's votes. We'll go to Bolsonaro. The other half will go to Lula. That helps Lula more than it helps Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro doesn't need half of Ciro Gomez's votes. He needs all of Ciro Gomez and all of Simone Tebet's votes. 
you know, I mean, um, abstention was a big factor. It looks like they deliberately tried to slow down the voting process in areas where Lula has the most support. Here in Recife, in the Northeast, where um, uh, Lula won by around 70% to 30% margin, it looks like. Um, there were four-hour lines to vote. They changed the address of polling stations the week before the election. So these are dirty tricks that, you know, resemble a lot of stuff that happens in the U.S., um, you know, because abstention always favors the incumbent. But the, the Superior Electoral Court is saying that it's going to do everything it can to make sure this doesn't happen again. More participation will help Lula. In addition, the fact that the two parties with the third and fourth candidates are backing Lula, that's also bad news for Bolsonaro. You know, so what he really has to do is try to get people who didn't vote to vote for him. And that's an uphill battle because most of them are poor and poor people making less than two minimum salaries have been voting at a two to one margin for Lula instead of Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro's big support groups are all income brackets above two times the minimum wage. The lower middle class, middle middle class, upper middle class and the rich all voted more for Bolsonaro than Lula. The problem for Bolsonaro is that 70% of the Brazilian population makes less than two times the minimum wage, right? That's the core support group of Lula. Brian, last thing, I thought it was interesting that even though we didn't hear talk about fraud in Brazil after these elections, we did from Steve Bannon. Did you see that story that Steve Bannon and some other far-right folks in the States were saying that the reason why Bolsonaro didn't win was because of fraud? It's like they're pushing the fraud narrative in the U.S., even if that's not what's being pushed in Brazil. It's kind of crazy, right? Well, Bolsonaro's like taking orders from Bannon now, and he's talking about it. But yeah, it just shows like, I mean, the idea that BBC and PBS would run a three-hour documentary about Bolsonaro, giving Steve Bannon ample time, possibly more airtime than anyone else except for Brian Winter from the petroleum mining and agribusiness front group as COA, you know, that they wouldn't even push back at anything he said. So like in that documentary, he says, well, I don't know anything about Brazil. I just got in touch with the Bolsonaro to learn from them. But it's obvious that they're just getting orders from him. They're taking all their orders from the international far right, you know, all their ideas, all of that Cambridge Analytica style, big data stuff they did, the smear campaigns, the negative campaigning, uh, preemptively saying there's going to be election fraud. That, all, that wasn't invented by the Bolsonaros. <laughs> you know, that all comes from the U.S. The problem is there's some differences between the U.S. system and the Brazilian system. You know, so um, just blanketly applying tactics from the United States into a, a system with 23 political parties where the vote is mandatory, you know, it might not work the same way. And also just the fact that like, a lot of the drama in American elections, U.S. elections, takes place during the tallying period. So right. during mm -hmm. the tallying period in a U.S. presidential election, you've got like 16 hours, 12 hours, whatever, to launch, launch all kinds of BS into the media and into the social media. In Brazil, the tallying takes three hours. So they don't have the same window of time to manipulate things during that actual period. Brian, thank you so much. Is there anything else to add that you think is important? Yeah, just like 
pay attention to these false narratives because it's really nefarious. It looks like the Western media is trying to set up, trying to normalize Bolsonaro victory right now. And, you know, it, it's possible that it could happen, but none of the actual uh, data out there suggests that this will happen. And also the dynamics in Senate and Congress are very different from the United States and, and Brazil. You know, the fact that Bolsonaro's wackiest cabinet minister, former cabinet ministers and allies picked up 14 seats in Senate, you know, that's a problem. But PT picked up nine seats in Senate. There are 81 members of the Senate. You know, the, uh, it doesn't mean that Bolsonaro's, you know, closest allies are controlling the Senate right now. That's another thing, narrative I've seen, like, how is Lula going to govern? Well, he'll govern the same way he did last time around, by executive order. I mean, you see, like, Bernie Sanders's promises. Obviously, if he'd been elected president, how many of those promises would he have been able to deliver on? I think the Workers' Party has a pretty good record on delivering on many of its historic promises, like job generation, ending hunger, more opportunities for family farmers, and more opportunities for, for young students. You know, they delivered on all of that. They couldn't deliver on keeping Brazil uh, GMO free. You know, they couldn't deliver on on some of the economic, the macroeconomic, uh, you know, historical promises and things like that. But in general, I think they did better than any democratic president I've ever seen in the U.S., you know. That is all for this update to Brazil on Fire, produced in co-production with NACLA and The Real News. Stay tuned for more interviews and updates from Brazil in the coming weeks. The second round vote is on October 30th. I'm Michael Fox. See you next time.